Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8. Now hold that place in your scripture because what I want to do is start with the proverb of the day and it's just amazing how the Lord works because this particular proverb, Proverbs 12, 12, coincides with our New Testament message and we didn't do that on purpose. It just fell that way. So Proverbs 12, 12, it says, The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. And that's in the New King James. Uh, in the Living Bible, which is sort of like a paraphrase and uh, kind of helps you get a more concise point there, it says this, basically the same thing, crooks are jealous of each other's loot, while good men long to help each other out. And I like that, crooks, you know, nefarious men, um, those that are up to no good. Uh, they, they have ill-gotten gain and they have their marbles, so to speak. And they look at another crook and he's got more marbles. You know, you kind of see this sometimes with corrupt politicians. They're not happy with their graft. They see the other guy who's doing even better than them. So this is a thing where these types of folks are self-centered. Uh, all they care about is what they have. And they look at others and they still get jealous. However, it says, while good men long to help each other. Now, this transcends socio and economic boundaries. Good men tend to help each other. A poor man helps a poor man. A rich man helps a poor man. And, and these types of relationships are happening because they're other-centered. And it kind of really brings us into our message today. Because today we're going to speak about the circumstances surrounding generosity. Now, if you're new to our fellowship... Calvary Chapel model is that we don't pressure people for money. We don't believe that's biblical. In Calvary Chapel, we only speak about giving when it's in the scripture, right? Because if you pressure people to do something and you force them, all that gives is, all that uh, emanates from that is uh, uh, resentful giving. And that's not what the Lord's looking for. Actually, in chapter 9, we're going to see that God loves a cheerful giver. So it just is where we fell. We're in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, and then next, next Sunday is chapter 9, and uh, both of those uh, sermons have to speak about giving. So on the one hand, many are turned off by the harassing and haranguing nature of appeals for money, right? Uh, maybe, and, and I've heard this before. Oh, I come from a church where the, the leader asks for my W-2 forms. Yeah, can you believe that? We don't do that here. Aren't you happy? And they say, well, this is what you need to give us. And that's kind of like extortion. You know, I don't agree with that. And if you want to get, if you want to get married or there's a funeral to be had, uh, they'll soak you. You know, we looked at your records and, you know, you're pretty weak. So if you want to get married in our church, this is what we're going to do. So we don't agree with that. My son uh, will, at times, if he goes to another church because he's with relatives, and I'll be very general, uh, I'll ask him when he comes home, son, what did you learn from church? Well, one particular Sunday, he came home, and I said, Son, what did you learn about God today in church? He said, You have to give 10%. <laughs> he said they had graphs, daddy, and categories, and how much money, and who fit in there, and, you know, kind of was a... And, and I said, What else did you learn? And he really didn't have much to say. But there's really a biblical way to do things. But the truth is, on the other hand, as born-again believers, here's the flip side of the coin. As born-again believers, we're called to be generous. At the very least, we're called to open our hearts to those who are in need. It's kind of hard to say that I'm born again if I only know how to take care of myself. So we're going to jump in and we're going to see what uh, is going on here in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. It says, the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, 
We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. So we're going to break this down into sections. The first section here, this first example of giving, is exemplified in the Macedonian churches. And Macedonia, right, was a, really the northern uh, area of Greece, and Achaia was the southern area where Corinth was. So Macedonians were in the north and the, and the uh, Corinthians were in the south. But Paul's basically saying the following is how God's grace has been given to the Macedonians. They gave out of their poverty to the poor Judean church. Did you catch that? That giving is a manifestation of grace. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Macedonians were an example because they gave notwithstanding their poverty and their trials. In other words, they were suffering themselves, but they knew it was right and trusted God for the outcome instead of hoarding their resources. Now, many can come up with excuses of why we can't be generous, and they're just that, excuses. I want to turn to Luke 21, and I'm only going to read four verses. Luke 21, 1 through 4. It says, Then he, Jesus, looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, no doubt the temple treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty has put in all the livelihood that she had. And a mite was worth very little in the ancient world. And no doubt the disciples, it's amazing how how we see things as natural or uh, fleshly people and how God sees things often very different. So no doubt the disciples were probably hanging around Jesus and they were just watching, observing, and the rich would put in, you know, maybe something that was very shiny and yellow and possibly gold, right? And they probably completely overlooked this poor widow who put in two mites. That wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be a blip on the radar screen. But Jesus says, I tell you, she's put in more than the rest of them. Because she put in out of their poverty. The rest put in out of their abundance. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, Ferraris and mansions and... Oh, no, I'm sorry. All these things. Because in context, he spoke about clothing. He spoke about food. He spoke about things that were needed. All these things will be added to you. And verse 5 is a key here because the Macedonians, they first gave themselves to God and then gave themselves to giving through the Apostle Paul's appeal. You see, giving is a spiritual exercise. Just like when you go to the gym and you pick up your weight and you start pumping your, your arms and they start getting bigger over time, uh, that's a muscle exercise. You know, you break it down and it builds up stronger than it was before. But giving is a spiritual exercise. And the more we exercise it, the more we become generous. And in verse 4, you can almost see Paul telling the Macedonians, you guys are in rough shape, and I'm paraphrasing. You're giving too much. Hey, you guys got to take care of yourselves. You know, we didn't expect that much from you guys. We know the situation. But their response was, 
and again, I'm paraphrasing, no, this is from the Lord, we'll be okay. They also gave out of their poverty. Giving beyond what is comfortable can only be a spiritual exercise because the flesh desires to hoard wealth to fall back on and trust in. Now, I want you to call out, if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a definition, and you tell me what the word is. To believe in, to trust in, to rely upon. Pastor Anthony, don't say it. Anybody know what that is? that's the definition of? Exactly. Wow, you guys are good. <laughs> to believe in, to trust in, and to rely upon. You see, it's not wrong to have a pension or a, a bank account or a checking account or any of those things to that nature, but it's really a heart issue. If we have faith in what our earnings are and what, what we're going to fall back on, we're not trusting in God. Because you can only put your faith in God or in something else. You can't do them at the same time. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. So again, it's not wrong to own a home. It's not wrong to have a bank account. Most of us do. However, do we trust in and rely upon that bank account to save us? Or do we trust in God to save us? And I'll ask you this question. What is it that we have today, right now? Our lives, our health, our bank accounts, our pension systems. What is it that we have today that we can't lose tomorrow? The answer is nothing. We saw that in the book of Job, didn't we? Right? We can't give ourselves to others if we haven't given ourselves to God as his servants, which is so hard for many. Now, regarding example... And again, some will make excuses. Some will even make excuses in ministry. You see, ministry responsibilities don't end in this pulpit. Pastors also are not exempt from being personally generous. And a church governing body also has a responsibility to set aside funds for missions and benevolence and homeless and things to that nature. A stingy church is not a spiritual church. You see, Arthur Brooks, which is amazing because he wrote this book called who really cares, right? And he was a, an admitted liberal professor from Syracuse. And he says, you know what? Everybody talks about the poor. Every election cycle, the Republicans and the Democrats, and we're all going to talk about how we help the poor. And then when we get in, you know, we kind of do our own thing. So he said, who really cares? And he wrote this book. He was actually stunned to find that his research proved that Bible-believing Christians from low and middle class incomes were the most generous in America. Not the big mouths, not the politicians, you know, but it was the ones who really believed in Jesus, the one who lived out their faith. They were the ones who were the most generous. And you know what? It feels good to bless others. If you've been in that situation, and I know that many of you have, that's what we do as people of faith. It's two-pronged. Number one, it's a responsibility. And number two, there's a joy aspect to see someone else blessed and we are able to take part in it. I can tell you, to me, it's a great joy to be, for God to have used me to be a part of that situation. And sometimes seeing the poor help the poor, as in this situation, it should put others to shame who have the means and don't. Now, we may look at the poor Macedonians. We may look at the poor Judeans. Today, we may look at the poor people in Trenton or the poor people in New Brunswick with pity. But you know who's really the ones that we should look at pity? The one who hoards all his life and dies and is separated from that wealth and never had a chance to make a difference in someone's life. That person is the most pitiable. The Bible tells us that in Luke 12, the rich fool, he had so much stuff 
that he had to tear down his barns and put additions on and build bigger barns and, 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 and you know, his wheat and his grain and all that stuff, he had to build it bigger because he just had so much stuff. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be required of you. Where's the wealth? What did Solomon say in Ecclesiastes? All the stuff that I built, all the riches that I accumulated, what's going to happen when I die? What if my son is foolish and he squanders it? Right? It was his concern. In Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Remember Lazarus. He sat at the gate, probably wasn't allowed inside. Right? He had his guards. He had a, the rich man had to protect his assets. He had his gates. And Lazarus was outside the gates. And he was poor. And he was suffering. And he had open wounds. He couldn't get good medical care. And the only ones that helped him out were the dogs. They licked his oozing sores to make him feel better. Kind of really gross, for lack of a better word, but that was the only compassion that he got. And the rich man died, and he went into Hades, and it was hot there. And he wanted Abraham to send somebody back to tell his brothers, you know, change your behavior. I don't want you guys to end up here too, but it was too late, right? That's the man to be pitied. Although the world may have looked at him and said, wow, that guy has everything, because that's what the world does. They look at everything with unspiritual eyes. But we as people of faith have to look different. Verse 7, But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So the second example of giving is exemplified in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the Macedonians were an example of the poor helping those in need, and Jesus was an example of the rich helping those in need. And let me qualify that, rich giving. In verse 7, the Corinthians boasted in having many things, including the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul had to really put them in their place because they were abusing. Some were outright faking, manifesting the gifts of the Spirit. And I think Paul, and again, if to paraphrase, it's my paraphrase, he probably said, in a sense, to be complete, you guys think you have all the gifts of the Spirit? Remember, the gift of generosity, the gift of helps, the gift of giving, that's in there. I'd hate to see you guys come up short. So he's exhorting them, encouraging them, saying, look, you guys think you have everything? You, you may be lacking this. Those, those uh, Judeans really need you. And it kind of segues really into Jesus, the Son of God, having all riches and abounding in grace towards us in his divesting of his heavenly abode and coming to earth. And who can imagine? None of us can imagine. It's unfathomable. It's unfathomable. It goes beyond our finite minds. Who can imagine being God with all the accompanying riches, owning everything imaginable, never having loss, only to leave the heavenly abode, come to the earth, not taking any riches with him, suffering loss, suffering persecution, and becoming a servant? That should really help us to understand the depth of the love that God has for us. You know, if any of us humans, we would say, if that's a crummy deal to me, why would a king ever leave his throne to become a pauper, right? The answer is this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. There's your answer, the gospel message. And with that, we too, fallen, sinful rebellious creatures could also share in those eternal riches. He became poor so we could become rich 
for eternity. And the question is, if we want to use Jesus as an example, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the question is, where would we be as fallen creatures if God was stingy with us? That's a good point, isn't it? And he refused to save us. So this is a good reason to not have a stingy or miserly heart. See, God sets the example. Jesus set the example in his word and following his word. And even the parable about the unforgiving servant. God says, I forgave you. I expect you to forgive others. I've been generous with you. I expect you to be generous with others. Don't shut your heart from someone in need. And in verse 8, the apostle Paul decides not to command them to help, but to test their love and sincerity. Remember, faith without works is dead. Now, how does that compare with the modern paradigm of preachers today, using guilt and manipulation to get you to separate yourself from your money, right, for themselves? A friend of mine is a pastor, and some time ago, he visited a church, and it was charismatic, a faith church, that kind of stuff. And he's sitting there, he's checking it out, and the pastor said, now everybody take out your wallets and your handbags, right? <laughs> Some of you know where this is going. It gets worse. <laughs> he says, switch it with the person next to you. So you're giving yours up, and they're taking, you're taking their nares. And he goes, now, take it, empty it into the offering plate. That's, that's not reflected in Scripture. You know, it's not reflected in Scripture. The correct way is for believers to presented, be presented with a need and allow the Holy Spirit to work, convincing or convicting, and if we're truly born again, we will respond to that convicting and be generous. Pastor Anthony did a great job some Wednesday nights ago on Malachi 3, uh, on the question of tithing. It was very tastefully done. And over the years, I've also noticed that if I've been faithful and I've done what the Lord has asked, then he's been faithful. There's been times, you know, my wife and I were struggling, and I just looked at the bills, and I looked at the checkbook, and I'm like, there's a, there's a discrepancy here. But you know what? He always provided. You know, he always provided. I remember even as a little boy, my mom wasn't saved. Uh, we didn't grow up in a Christian home, and she just, we were poor, you know? And she would always write a check, and I'd say, who are you writing a check to? The poor people. I said, Mom, I thought we were poor. And she said, well, someone always has it worse than you. And that's, that's really neat. It was, it was something I never forgot, even as a little boy. And it really affected me, even when I uh, gave my heart to the Lord. I just remembered that. Verse 10, Paul says, And in this I give my advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equity, equality. As it is written, he who gathered much has nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack." So the third point is a purpose in giving. What's the purpose? Well, to lend a helping hand, to share, and to trust God by not hoarding. Verses 10 and 11, he basically said, finish what you started. There was a project started a year ago to collect money for the poor Judean churches. And after a year, it still wasn't finished. So finish what you started, right? And verse 12, 
we see that give what, out of what you have, not what you don't have. Our giving should not be to the point where we starve our own families, right? I've actually counseled some, or let me, let me back up for a minute. Be careful not to give while being caught up in emotion or peer pressure. How can you hear from God if, you, if that's happening? You can't, because there's overriding factors that are jamming the signals. I've actually counseled restraint. If some wanted to give, I say, well, just pray about it. You know, definitely give it to the Lord. Don't give out of an emotional or pressured appeal. On the other hand, you see people cry poverty. You know, oh, I don't have, I don't have. Let me just tell you something. If you're saying you don't have money, but you're able to have money for smoking, drinking, going out to dinner every night, designer clothes, making payments on a new BMW while you're living in your friend's garage, that's just bad choices. I mean, we're called to stewardship, ladies and gentlemen. It's amazing what folks will spend or waste their money on, excuse me. We should live within our means, not waste what we have. Shouldn't pamper ourselves at the expense of others who are really, truly suffering. And again, I've said this before. Poverty in America is different than poverty in India. You need to talk to some missionaries. Big difference. You know, there's, there's always a catch or a net or something to catch you if you're really struggling here. Over there... People are losing their lives, you know what I'm saying? So there's a big difference. Uh, verse 13 and 14. So he, sees, he speaks about this equality. Now, what is that word? Is that communism? Is that socialism? No, it's not. The Greek word is isotase, where we get in English the word isotope in science. It means a likeness in proportion, and I'll add, to abundance and lack. Not a redistribution of wealth, like we hear some in the government say, but a sharing. And this is the problem that I have with government getting so far into our lives that they become the arbiters of social justice. The problem is that there's a propensity for graft, corruption, and the like. Why? It's simple. Because you have unspiritual men handling millions of dollars. It's always a recipe for evil. Even look at the UN. It's supposed to be a benevolent organization helping the poorer countries. Billions and billions of dollars disappearing ending up in someone's bank account. Why? You have unspiritual men, and all they see are the dollar signs, and it's never enough. I can take a dollar, I can take a thousand dollars, then it becomes a hundred thousand, then it becomes... This doesn't end. Where does it end? Right? It doesn't end. Years ago, houses of worship were more efficient in social programs than the government. It's what we should be doing. It's a higher command. However, unfortunately now, houses of worship, we consider ourselves evangelicals. Look what's going on in the evangelical world. There's these guys that they're pastors or preachers, and they are worth multi-million dollars. They have their own private jets, their mansions, and, you know, what's the purpose? What's the purpose? So houses of worship were supposed to be able to, through the Bible, okay, through the generosity of Christians distributed to those who are in need, but a lot of that's changed too. How can we love God and ignore the, the needs of others? The answer is we can't. And he does quote something here in verse 15. He says, as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. I want to take you to Exodus 16. In the Old Testament, Exodus 16, right after Genesis. I'll just read it in its entirety. This is when the, the manna came. You know, manna in the Hebrew literally meant what is it? This stuff came from heaven, like coriander or whatever is like snowflakes. And God told them to gather it up for food for themselves. But he had specific instructions. 
Verse 15, he says, So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one, or, one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, and one omer for each person, according to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So what happens is they're gathering the manna, and God was very specific. Remember, what it, you know, we say, well, God makes these rules, and they're so oppressive. Every rule that God has is for our own good. The whole idea, according to Paul, and if you look into Exodus, for the, for the gathering just enough for your family's need for that day, was that God wanted you to rely on him. Some were tempted when nobody was looking to get a, get a whole bunch of omers together, right? And, you know, take it with them and put it in their tent or wherever they lived. And it, it started to rot and stink and breed worms. God would not allow it to last for the week because he was trying to show them, you need to trust me for your daily needs. The only difference was, I believe, uh, the day before the Sabbath, they could, they could um, gather more for the Sabbath because they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. That was the only uh, part that, that he was allowing there. But the whole idea was to condemn the hoarding principle. Now, Paul is using this when it comes to being generous. In other words, number one, you're not relying and not trusting on God. Human nature and the flesh wants financial security. Get this, autonomous of God. It's a hard issue. Again, so many say money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. It's inert. It's a medium of exchange. You know, we used to barter. Now we use paper money and it's backed by the government. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. So when you want to gather too much manna or you want to gather too much money and your heart is saying, I, I can't, your heart is saying, I can't trust God. I have to do it myself. I have to do it my way. This is how it's going to work. I remember Ted Turner had, was worth $2 billion. And he was concerned. I mean, he's getting up there in age. He was concerned that he didn't have enough money for his retirement with $2 billion. <laughs> Ted, what planet are you on? I mean, what is your, I don't know, what do your um, bills look like? But the second point is we see the greed of those who wanted to collect more than the others and have an edge over the others. Now, both of these principles are applied in giving. I want to read one verse in 1 John 3.17. I love this. You know, I think I'm praying about going to... Um, uh, first John after this because this is just a very powerful book first John three seventeen. He says but whoever has this world's goods material goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him How does the love of God abide in him? The answer is it doesn't How can we say we're born again have? abundance see someone in need and say like in the book of James, yeah, be warm and fed, but not by me. Maybe somebody will be nice and come along and help you out, but it isn't going to be me. And this is all through the scripture. How can we see someone in need, have the ability to help them, and just ignore them, right? It's kind of neat, the whole thing with Haiti. 
there was just such an outpouring that Samaritan's Purse was overloaded. Uh, in the first few weeks, they were, they were like, you know, they had to get their bearings because so many people called up and wanted to help. You know, how could you not, seeing what happened to these people, right? Verse 16. But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the church, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Paul was very firm. I really like Paul. Uh, but he was also very loving and exhortative. You know, if he had to be firm, there was a, a, a love motive behind that. And he, he, you can almost hear him saying, you know, I know you can do this. I know it's in your heart. You know, you're struggling a little bit, but I know you're going to do the right thing. Be the better person. Right? Good lessons in life. So the fourth section here is policies in giving. The dynamics of collection, character, and accountability aspect. Tightest and trustworthy brothers would be appointed the task of collection and transportation of the funds. Now, a few factors are here at work for collecting the financial gift, no doubt a monetary gift, for the hurting churches. Number one, those involved needed to be trustworthy. These brothers had a good reputation acknowledged by those around them. Two, more than one person would travel with the gift for accountability. And, you know, here, it's kind of cool because we try to do everything in Calvary Chapel that's based off Scripture. And we have a good system here, too. We have three that collect the tithe, and uh, they're actually instructed with the checks to have them count them face down, just a number of checks. And then what they do is they fill out a sheet, and it's double-checked by a church administrator, right? Paul didn't collect the money alone. At the time, there were many false accusations leveled at Paul, and he didn't want to add any more fuel to the fire. And it's good to be above board and accountable when it comes to money, because money to some is like a drug. You say, oh, the heroin junkie or the alcoholic. There are some that are addicted to money. It's a drug to them. They're addicted to lavish lifestyles, and it's just as poisonous, and it's just as sinful as heroin, okay? And it's just as addicting. So... Checks and balances. And again, I'll, I'll just expound a little bit more. What I like the way we do things here is that we have our checks and balances and the pastors don't see what you tithe. You could tell me, oh, I tithe last week. I wouldn't know the difference and I don't care. The only thing that we do as pastors is we see the aggregate uh, budget so that, or the aggregate amount so that we can make a budget off of. Every year we redo the budget based on what's going out and what's coming in. That's a great system and I love that because... You know, I could say, hey, I'm a great guy, I'm a pastor, but I would prefer that I don't see it because I don't want to take the chance on my heart being prejudiced for 
or against someone based on what they give. And I think that's a, a good uh, scriptural thing to look at. The worst examples of church are when wicked men use ministry as an opportunity to get wealthy. So when I tell people I'm a pastor and I'm out and I'm trying to talk to them about the Lord, there's, a, there's plenty of speed bumps, right? I can't look at God as my father because my father beat me. Okay, we've got to get out over that speed bump. Or, you know what, I don't want to go to church and I don't care about hearing about Christianity because all they want is your money. That's another speed bump. And I'll tell you what, that's one of the most common speed bumps that I hear. And some of it's just chaff. It's just an excuse for not wanting to change their life and be accountable to God. But some of it is, is real, especially if you watch television. You watch enough TV and you see what's going on in the Christian world, you think that they're all about money. They all want your money and they all spend their money, your money, and they make themselves wealthy. The fourth point, verse 23, that these brothers at the end, the ones who helped to collect, were called um, in the Greek, apostolos, which is where we get the word in English, apostle. So here's a spiritual office. You can't have unspiritual men handling money, and that goes back to the government example. That's why it's almost, listen, the bigger the pot, all right, the bigger the pot that the government has and gives to somebody to run it, the bigger the chance for graft especially if you have unspiritual men dealing uh, in that situation. Even board members. Not only should they have a financial savvy, but they should be primarily a spiritual office, right? Um, I had a board, and I had board members over the years, and uh, there was a time where I had, I'll just speak in generalities, that one or more board members started to uh, go away from following the word, not showing up so much on Sunday, not coming out to and keeping themselves accountable with the word. And I got a check in my spirit and I knew that I was going to have a problem. And what eventually happened was fear and things to that nature caused them to try to hoard the money. And I said, no, we have to have a, a good portion of it to go out. The church needs to tithe also. We need to help people. We need to have benevolence. We need to help the homeless. And, and, you know, that's what you're going to get. If you have unspiritual folks on the board, you're going to have problems. And I did, but thank God they're not here anymore. Personal word on generosity. Let me just wrap it up. And I'll just say this, and this is the, the glory to, the God, to God. Prior to being saved, well, my wife hears this, she's going to laugh. Prior to being saved, I was a miser. I really was. I was very stingy. I would actually have a little piece of paper. If you owed me $2, I would write, Bob, $2. <laughs> All right, I don't do that anymore, okay? I'm just telling you what I used to do. And the more I try to hold on to my money, the more I couldn't hold on to my money. And I was like, I don't understand it. I collected all my $2 notes. Why do I still not have enough money, right? But when I gave my heart to the Lord, all that changed. And it was a joy to share that with others. One thing I found is that the more I matured and my heart became generous, the less I found that I, that I never lacked. And there's also a motive issue here. This is important. We don't give to God because we're looking to double our money. When we tithe and we give to the poor, we're not playing the divine powerball, okay? Let's get that straight. Some people have the wrong impression about giving. So if I give 1000 to the church, by the end of the year, I should have another 10000 That's not. That's not what we're doing here. That's a, that's a hard issue again. We give because generosity comes from God. It's an evidence of a changed life, and it's an overflow of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Okay? I would remember sometimes my wife and I would sit down, and you know, all the neighbors were getting the pool and the renovations and the new car. 
And it'd be like, you know, a certain time of the year, it'd say, you know, we accumulated a few, some money in the bank. And um, before we ever did a home improvement or something like that, we would look at our tithing. We would look at our generosity. And we would kind of make fun. We would laugh at ourselves. We'd be like, oh, the hungry kids in Africa again. The missionary family. Oh, yeah, okay, I guess we're going to have to wait on the home renovation. But it's true. When you, when you weigh out blessing somebody in need and doing something for your house that's not going to last forever, what should really weigh out in all that and the balances, right? I want to close with one proverb, and uh, we'll go to prayer. Proverbs 28, 27. It says, he who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. James actually says that um, if you have it in your power to do good and you do not do good to him, that is sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love your word. We, it's just a joy every Sunday to dig deep into your scriptures and to see how it applies to our life, Lord. Lord, we just um, pray that it settles down into our heart and it, it manifests in all aspects of our lives, Lord. So we just go before you right now and we just ask, while you're blessing us with your word and we're holding it in our heart and we're looking forward to the fellowship after service, I just want to say, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus, maybe you haven't read the Bible before, maybe you got little smatterings of a verse here and there, but you've never really opened God's word and you're saying, boy... God's word is really instructional to my life. This word has power. It's not me. Because Romans 10, 17 says it's faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's because I was reading the scripture to you and you were looking at it on the page. God's word is powerful. Jesus was the logos, the word of God. So I just would want to say that if your heart is being moved, you're being stirred. While Dave's playing worship, I would ask you to come up out of your seat, come to the front, and I just lead you in a prayer. You're not.